part of Freemasonry was their connections back to the, the ancient builders. The, the idea of geometry and mathematics, um, and even going so far as to introduce music as a kind of geometry and mathematics as well. This idea that the whole the human experience is based upon some chords. By the way, um, if you haven't seen the movie The Gods Must Be Crazy, that's a good example of a cargo cult. You know, in some <coughs> harmonics, uh, the builders understood that. You know, they, they uh, integrated the earthly topography with the celestial one. That was very important. The alignment of buildings, even if it was just purely on cardinal, cardinal points, north, east, south, and west, something. There was this idea that the planet and the cosmos itself was connected in some way, and the connection was to be found in mathematics and geometry. Uh, that was the beginning, I think, of understanding how to create this kind of uh, mystique where we're going to go off planet. Uh, the ancient Masons, uh, before the 18th century, the Masons who were actually conducting ceremonies in the 15th century, for instance, in the 16th century, were really focused on the idea of number one building and geometry on the one hand, but at the same time with initiation on the other, with death and rebirth. And death and rebirth rituals go back at least as far as ancient Egypt. Uh, the pyramid structures were designed, as one uh, pyramidologist called it, the pyramid is a resurrection machine. And the idea that you can create a device that would send someone to the stars to live uh, an immortal existence was, was ancient. It's, it goes back to the very heart of what it means to be human in our civilizations around the world, the idea of immortality. So I think connecting immortality with geometry and with building and with music, creating these devices, these machines, the Gothic cathedrals. Now, a lot of us think of Freemasons as a bunch of guys meeting up, you know, and dressing in funny robes and, you know, memorizing long, incomprehensible speeches and then having business discussions later, right, uh, in small towns across the United States and around the world. But there's another aspect of Freemasonry, which is the initiatory one. The third degree ritual is a beautiful ritual of death and rebirth. And it's something that's been duplicated by cultures all around the world. And that, I think, is where our focus is. What does that mean? What is death and rebirth? What is immortality? You know, what is the secret of human existence? Why are we here? All these things go back to these issues. And the only way, sometimes, to understand what these issues are is to experience them directly. And that's what the initiation process <coughs> enables you to do. So would you say that we have a lot to learn from ancient Egypt, whether it be we should take pantheism from it, or even our, even alchemy. Obviously, I know you, you're very fascinated by alchemy. You've written a, a number of books on the subject. So you think that these are important for our society, obviously. I think that ancient Egypt is. Um, what uh, we know so little about it, really. We're uncovering more and more information as we, as we go along. The country is full of monuments and uh, stelae and things we haven't seen yet. We're uncovering day by day. I think that, for me, the interest was always in one specific ritual, believe it or not. Out of all the rituals of ancient Egypt, only one really fascinates me, and that's the opening of the mouth ceremony. And that's the mummy uh, process. During the mummification process, an actual device is used. This is a very interesting looking thing because it makes no sense if you look at it within the context of Egyptian culture in general. It's an oddly shaped iron device, which is used to open the mouth of the mummy which is basically used to animate the mummy as it's going on its trip to the stars. The device is shaped 
exactly in the pattern of the Big Dipper. And it's called the thigh of Set. And sometimes in the hieroglyphics and in some of the Book of the Dead paintings that you'll find, you'll find an actual thigh of a bull used as part of the ceremony. But also this adze, as they call it in English, A-D-Z-E, it adze, is fashioned in this form. Why is that? And that's because the Great Bear constellation rotates around the North Star, the Pole Star. And it never sets, it never rises or sets, it circles on, on top. Uh, it doesn't go below the, the horizon or above it. It just stays in one place and goes around roughly 24 hours a day. You can actually tell time by this constellation, but more importantly, there are seven major stars of the Big Dipper. And that, to me, was the basis of our mystification about the number seven. It was not seven planets. I don't think the ancients were as innocent or naive to think that the sun and the moon were the same as the five other planets that they saw. I think they were smarter than that. I think the seven refers to those seven stars because they are seven steps that lead you to the final throne, the throne of immortality, the throne of God. And this is re reprised in some of the ancient Jewish ceremonies, the Merkavah mysticism, Pechalot, which is to go on seven, a journey of seven stages and then reach the throne of God at the end. Mm -hmm. And you'll find the names of the stars used by the, the Arabs and used by some of the ancient uh, cultures reflect this idea. This is a vehicle, these seven stars. It's called Charles Wayne in England. You know, it's an actual cart that's pulled by a horse. The Arabs have a similar idea. It's called a, a chariot in some cultures. In China, it's called a chariot. So in cultures all around the world, they see this as a vehicle. And that, to me, is fascinating. So there's the, the design of the vehicle. And it's made out of meteoric iron, which was probably magnetized ore, which would then have pointed north anyway. Right. And so they use this to actually animate the mummy, the spirit contained within the mummy, and so that it can then proceed on its way to the stars. So that, to me, is there's a whole world of information. There. And aside from the number seven, the number nine obviously was prominent within Assyrian Egypt because there was the Aeneid of nine gods. Mm -hmm. Now, you say this channeling session of the nine in the 1950s, right? It was led by a CIA agent, Andrea Buhart, and apparently they were, they were channeling the nine. What do you make of that session? Why is this so important in your book, your first Sinister Forces volume was called The Nine? Why is this session so important to you? To me, it's, it's an astonishing event in human history. I mean, I can't even begin to describe how important this has to be, and it's largely ignored. Even though everyone's written about it, I mean, uh, Poharich himself wrote about it in some detail. Uh, elements of this came out in various places. Uh, people acknowledged that it existed. Everyone knows that this actually happened, and yet nobody cares. And it's like, I can't believe it. Here in this particular seance, you had not only Andrea Poharich, who at the time had a commission in the US Army, uh, was going back to the army during the Korean War, was giving speeches on weaponizing the paranormal, you know, at Edgewood Arsenal. I mean, here was a guy who was considered okay by the <laughs> military industrial establishment, right? So he's going on and talking about this, but he's having a seance in the woods in Maine, and participating in the seance is a DuPont, a member of the DuPont family, a member of the Astor family. Uh, Arthur Young, who invented the Bell helicopter, and his wife, Ruth Forbes. These people are all part of the seance. This is the blue blood American dynasties who are present at this particular seance trying to contact extraterrestrial beings or some kind of spiritual force, later described as nine beings 
above a spacecraft in low Earth orbit. What? You know? So I'm looking at this and thinking, this is incredible. And this is Arthur Young and Ruth Forbes. Ruth Forbes, where have I heard that name before? You know? So Ruth Forbes was Ruth Forbes Payne Young. She had been multiply married and always married to people who were very you know, prominent in their fields and wealthy. And of course, she was the Forbes family. Goes without saying. So you had a Forbes, a DuPont, an Astor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're all there. And Ruth Forbes, of course, was the mother-in-law of Ruth Payne. And Ruth Payne lived in Texas and was a friend of Marina Oswald and Lee Harvey Oswald. It was Ruth Payne who got Lee his job at the Texas School Book Depository. And her mother-in-law was at this seance in 1952, 53, and they're, they're conducting these rituals, you know, and they're contacting spiritual forces. And then the speech is from the, the beings, we are nine and you are nine, because there were nine participants, you know, basically go out and do likewise, you know, go out and do things and, you know, change the world. And a very interesting sentence was given that peace is not necessarily the absence of war. And to me, that was kind of a chilling statement. And it was never really explained more than that. What do you mean by that? Can we have war and still have peace? Really? How are we interpreting peace? You know. So all of this is happening in 1953. The, the first seance was in 52, New Year's Eve. And then the actual seance with all the people involved was in, in 1953. The UFO overflights of Washington, D.C. had occurred in 1952, right, in, in uh, July of 52. I don't know if this had any effect on what people were thinking at that seance or not. Uh, there might have been a connection, but what happened was Ruth Forbes Payne Young was the best friend of Mary Bancroft. Mary Bancroft was the mistress of Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA. During the Warren Commission, examinations and the testimony, the interviews that were given, Ruth Payne is being interviewed by the panel about what she knew about Lee Harvey Oswald and Marina Oswald, the story she wanted to learn Russian and all this other stuff that was going on. Um, I don't know if she ever learned Russian, quite frankly, but she had Marina living with her for a while, Lee on and off. And it was Ruth Payne who basically gave the show away to the cops as far as the rifle was concerned and the photographs and all this stuff. But she's the one who put him in the Texas School Book Depository. Her mother-in-law, as I said, was Ruth Forbes. She went to visit Arthur Young and Ruth Forbes a couple of months before the assassination. So she had already known Marina and Lee very well. She had a Russian defector, a US Marine who had defected the Soviet Union and come back with a Russian wife who was the niece of a military intelligence colonel living in her house. I think this was discussed, you know, when she went up and talked to Arthur Young and, and Ruth and all the other other people, and then she comes back down, and a couple of months later, bang, the assassination, right? She's now giving testimony in front of the Warren Commission, and she starts to talk about that trip. She's going into details about going up, and I think it was in August and September, to visit the Youngs in Philadelphia. And Alan Dulles is there. He changes the subject immediately. He jumps on this and starts making jokes, <coughs> excuse me, about taxes, about something irrelevant, and the whole conversation gets derailed. I mean, it's fascinating, I couldn't figure out why. So you're saying you think that there's a connection also between, between the nine and the assassination of Kennedy, not just because of the personnel that are around Oswald, but you think there's an actual motiv motivational connection? Well, there is a connection, you see. The problem is, and this is, this is what we're trying to also explore in the Secret Machines Project, 
sometimes the connections are not what you think they are or they should be. In other words, we're looking at a conspiracy angle. So you're saying that Arthur Young and Ruth and his wife, Ruth Forbes, and all these people were involved in a conspiracy to kill the president? Not the way we understand it. That's why my book is called Sinister Forces. There's, there's another level of understanding history and the connections between things, uh, which I call a quantum view of history, was the Kennedy assassination a particle or a wave. You know, it depends upon how you're looking at this and what you want to bring to the table and what evidence there is there, because a lot of it, of course, is gone. So what you're looking at are the, the, is the silhouette of something, a dark and sinister force. It's oftentimes the synchronicities that are more prominent. That's the real science of the universe is synchronicity, and that's why as humans it's so difficult for us to discern what's taking place. Yes. Anecdotally, I know someone actually who uh, told me that he had heard from one of Kennedy's uh, mistresses that the only thing Kennedy feared was the nine. And my friend told me this. He said, I had no idea what, what she was talking about. I thought she meant the nine Supreme Court justices. Right. And then I see your book, and I'm like, what is going on? What is the synchronicity really about? Um, at the end of the day, do you believe that there are spell books, grimoires, there are th you know, things that basically are channeling these, you know, another dimension of reality that is ultimately influencing our world leaders in terms of how they decide to create, you know, our policy, which is oftentimes war, mm -hmm. which, you know, fuels these, you know, a debt-based system, right, of economics and the pyramid of power. Um, do you believe that there is this, you know, is this other level above our leaders that they basically consult with or look to in, term, in guiding them? It's an interesting question and you know as a person who works a lot with uh, source material and you know, documents, interviews and things like that, it's hard to pinpoint something like this definitively and say this is what's happening. You can have an instinctual understanding that maybe something like this is going on. But to answer the first part of your question first because that leads us into this, of course the grimoires, the workbooks, uh, in all cultures contain techniques, they contain a technology, an actual technology. To me, my interest in religion is not in the ideologies of religion and the theologies. Uh, to me, that's, um, that's misdirection, basically. Uh, it doesn't really give me the information that I need to know. Religion as an ethical uh, practice is one thing that obviously for some reason doesn't interest me at all, maybe because I was brought up a Catholic. But for the most part, I believe that religion is the exoskeleton of mysticism. It's what is shown to the people. It's, it, it kind of puts it in a coherent um, way, and including the rituals, of course. So for instance, for a Catholic, the ritual of the Mass is an extremely bizarre ritual. And it was after Vatican II that I sort of parted ways with the Catholic Church because the English Mass and you know the, the, the chasubles with the smiling faces and the guitars ruined the whole thing for me. You know, I wanted the mystical experience. Um, which the, the mass initially had. So you had, um, you know, the, the death and resurrection, like we mentioned before about Freemasonry. Here's the death and resurrection. It's an initiation ceremony, and they're all partaking of this ceremony in the mass. This is extremely powerful stuff. So behind the ritual, behind the theology, behind the organization, there's a core of a technology which was used to contact these forces that we're talking about. Uh, these forces of synchronicity, let's say, of the coincidences that run through history. You can essentially contact them, make contact in some way. And when I wrote Sinister Mr. Forces, I was always very conscious of the fact that all these people I was talking about had tried one way or another to make this kind of contact, or had the contact thrust upon them. For instance, Guy Bannister, you know, 
uh, being sent as an FBI agent in 1947 to investigate the UFO sightings in the Pacific Northwest and reporting directly to J. Edgar Hoover. You know, here's somebody who's talking to UFO witnesses, experiencers himself, and now suddenly there's a, there's a passage of almost 20 years. It's 1963, and there's the assassination. There's Guy Bannister in New Orleans punching out Jack Martin, you know, uh, because of the stuff that was going on with Oswald in New Orleans. How did that happen? Right? Here was somebody who was exposed to the UFO experience in 1947 in a direct way, under orders directly by Hoover, by Jagger Hoover, and he's sending back telexes back to Hoover that are marked, you know, subject X, you know, the actual X files. Right. And he's reporting on this back to Hoover. And then the passage of time, and he's SAC in Chicago, and then he retires and he goes to New Orleans, sets up his own thing. He's running guns to the Cubans, doing whatever else. The guy became kind of deranged, right? Something happened from this nice, normal FBI agent whose photograph you can sometimes find with his class, his graduating class of the FBI, you know. This very nice, normal guy suddenly becomes this maniac, you know, who's suspected actually of killing the president. Or part of that conspiracy. Or part of the conspiracy. So, you know, people make this contact for good or for ill, and sometimes the contact can be dangerous. You know, you have an experience, you don't know how to understand it, yeah. you don't know how to, how to express it, how to take it on board, and now it starts to color your entire reality. And that's possibly what happened with people like Guy Bannister or other people who made this contact, like, you know, the Arthur Young people and, you know, Andrea Baharich for sure. Well, I have to circle back because of, you know, you meant obviously Tom DeLonge and these military and other insider contacts that you've made. And you are someone who talks about secret space program, the idea that basically the U.S. already has a fleet in space. Based on your conversations with insiders, do you believe that we already are in space, that we have this other dimension of our military industrial complex and our spiritual complex that already is aware of the alien presence? I, okay, I'll have to answer that very carefully. I believe that uh, essentially, number one, they know more than they're telling um, in, in general terms to the, to the general public. I think that they are holding back some information. And I think the reason they're holding it back is not always for the reasons we suspect, political reasons or, or military reasons. There's enough of that. I mean, there were military reasons you know, to keep secrecy, uh, especially the Cold War was a time of tremendous secrecy. We didn't know what was going on. And that was for a reason. There, there was a struggle between these two superpowers. But now, I think that there is a, another aspect to this. Um, and the people that we've spoken to in general terms, I can say, without being too specific, have talked about the spiritual aspect of the phenomenon, of the UFO phenomenon. This is something that everybody, for the most part, seems to agree is part of the experience. There is a spirituality, let's say, to the phenomenon. And that is what's making everybody I think, from my perspective, a little nervous um, because we're not, as a society in this country, really set up to handle this in a positive way. I've written in Sinister Forces about shamanism. Uh, the shaman goes through an initiation, which is talking about Siberian shamanism, the real thing. They go through an experience which is horrendous. They experience their bodies being torn apart. They experience their bowels being removed and reinserted. They experience death in all kinds of ways as part of their initiation, alone in the forest. And when all of this is over with, they come back reborn. We don't have a mechanism for that in this country. So when people start to undergo processes like that, we either put them away, or in some cases, I've, as I've written, I believe that in some cases, serial killers are shamans who have not made it back. 
they are externalizing what should be an internal spiritual process. And they are constantly acting out, acting out the same ritual over and over again because this should have been internalized and it should have led to wholeness, to integration, mm -hmm. and it didn't. And I think that's a very good um, way of trying to understand what's happening in the United States or in the West in general. This idea that we really don't have a mechanism for incorporating spirituality in a positive way. We simply don't. It's, it's, it's partisan religion. And as a result, we become a culture of serial killers, even though we don't, are not all killing, but yet we are part of this militarized death machine that goes and projects power, that murders without, you know, without second thought, drops bombs, mutilates people, and does not, has not internalized, in a sense, mm -hmm. this process that we can actually go to the internal state. We can then start to welcome our space brothers, perhaps. Well, I don't know if I want to welcome the space brothers. We're not at that point yet. Um, but I'd certainly like to say hi. The, I've spent a lot of time overseas. And when 9-11 happened, people were saying, Americans were saying, why do they hate us? You know, this was the constant thing you used to hear. Why do they hate us? Why do they hate us? And I traveled a lot in my life since the 70s until now. And you don't know why they hate us? Go overseas. Just spend a little time in Latin America or or Asia, for instance, Southeast Asia is a good place to start, or Africa or the Middle East, you'll find out why. You know, there's a perception of the United States, which I don't agree with necessarily. I think that we do a lot more good than we're given credit for. But at the same time, you know, our personality as seen by others is such that we are not trusted. We, we are suspected of being too big, too powerful, too strong, and not in tune with what this means to the rest of the world. You know, so this is a problem that we have, uh, and we cannot manage these uh, expectations because every time we get to the point where it looks like we're going to, you know, make a good face, we go and bomb somebody, right? Or we go and overthrow a country or a government or something, and we have a rationale for doing that. And as someone who uh, has, you know, spoken to a lot of people in the intelligence community and the military community in general, uh, and I, I hang out with them, I, you know, I joined the. Association of Former Intelligence Officers, so I could talk to these people and listen to their aspect, their point of view. These are people who believe what they're doing. They're patriotic. You know, they're not people who are out there to, you know, demonize, you know, the, the third world or the developing nations. They're not out there to cause this kind of mischief. They think, you know, they're doing the right thing, and they're with tremendous sacrifice. So there's a power behind all of that. You know, there, there's motivation behind the people in the field, behind the people who are taking the orders and executing them. There's something else, and they don't know what it is. Yeah, even they don't know. Even they don't know. You know, and that's the thing that has always fascinated me about this. I was very upset as a Catholic uh, initially, um, learning about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and not knowing why they were not translated yet. We found them in 1947, for crying out loud. And here I was, a teenager in the 60s, thinking, well, what's in there? Shouldn't we know what's in there? Shouldn't we know the truth about, you know, Jesus and the saints and the Virgin Mary and all the rest of it? You're holding back something? This is of vital importance to us, right? As a Catholic, as a believing Catholic, I thought, what are you doing? Print this stuff so we can see what's going on, so we know before we're all dead, you know, what is really happening. How can we, you know, understand this? As I got older and I got older, I realized, you know, the fix is in, baby. The sinister forces behind it. Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. Really a pleasure. Always fascinating to talk to you. And there you have it, folks. Our great insights from Peter Lavenda. You may not agree with or believe everything said here today, but I urge you to check out his books, Secret Machines, and the Lovecraft Code.
Remember, the road to truth is a perilous path, and it requires constant reassessment. I'm your host, Sean Stone. You are the revolution. says your revelations of a multidimensional time traveler so if you are a multidimensional time time traveler what does that actually mean well it means that um, I leave my body and once I'm out of my body there's no such thing as time or space so we can jump through timeline timelines we can jump through dimensions and there's many different levels of uh, experience in those realms so was this something that began since your childhood? Is it something even before you were born that you recall? I mean, where, yeah, where does your journey begin? Well, um, I actually remember coming to Earth, which is a very strange memory, and I thought everybody had that memory. So I remember coming to Earth, going through portals, getting to view my parents before I was born, and then uh, suddenly I'm here. And I remember when I first started to talk, I would even tell my parents, aren't you happy I chose you? because I had this very strong memory growing up that I came to Earth. Um, and as a child, I was very, uh, I would say, open or psychic or gifted. And I would often have um, a visitor in my room, which a lot of children talk about, which is something in their closet. And, you know, I would go to sleep at night and I would, you know, push the door of my closet closed because I was very scared what was in there and at night this closet door would just open by itself and there would be a shadow standing in that closet and this shadow would uh, not only scare me but it would take me on journeys at night so I would uh, be taken back into time um, I would see past lives and sometimes I would just leave my body by myself and just go to the local park and play or sit and watch people play baseball at night so I had these abilities um, growing up but when I would speak to my parents and tell them what was happening to me, um, they would just tell me that this is completely normal and it's just called nightmares. So I just believed what I was experiencing was just nightmares and everybody had them. So 
what did you learn about this shadow? Because many people have experienced the shadow man standing in the room, experienced shadow attacks, feeling drained, psychic vampirism, for example. But what do you understand about the nature of the shadow? From my personal experience, and this has taken me a very long time to figure out, uh, because when it first started to happen, you know, you think, okay, this is like a ghost or an entity or a demon or an alien. You, you know, you really go to the worst things first. And I believed that for a very, very long time. But now I look at this shadow as an initiator, uh, something there to, um, you know, push us a little um, to make us see another reality. And it's almost like they're testing us. So, you know, I'm going to wake this guy up at night. I'm going to shake him up a little. And let's see how he reacts. Is he going to react out of fear? Is he going to react out of love? Well, how is he going to react to this situation? And over, and I'll say it was scary the first 500 times. Okay, first 500 times I'm fighting back, obviously. I don't like this feeling. But after about 500 times of this happening to me, um, you get annoyed. And when you start getting annoyed, it doesn't have that impact anymore. It's almost like they come to visit you and you say, oh, it's you again, what do you want? You know, And then you realize that they're, it's your fear that you're feeling. It's something that's inside of you. And once you get rid of that fear, suddenly this whole other world opens up to you. In terms of your journeys, uh, what types of other dimensions have you seen? Have you gone off world? In, is it like I say, in, there, in terms of other planets or other parts of the universe, you would say this is multidimensional travel, but do you believe that you've actually been to other planets? I have been to other planets, other dimensions, other timelines, and parallel Earths. Okay, those are all part of my experience range. And I would say it started to happen to me quite drastically when I was uh, in my early 20s. And what would happen was, is I would be sleeping at night and I would actually be forcefully pulled out of my body. So uh, just imagine you're laying in bed having a normal dream and then suddenly you feel something reach inside your body and yank you out of that dream and now you're floating above yourself in your bed. <laughs> and so those original experiences, um, I never asked for, I never prayed, I never meditated for it, they just started happening. And so once I got yanked out of my body and this being, it looked like um, a humanoid, but it was invisible. You, you know that effect from Predator where it's like you could make out their form, but you can't see them. They almost look invisible. That's what these beings looked like. And they would just rip me out of my body quite violently. And then I'd be shot up into outer space. So I'd experience that kind of like, you know, the Google Earth effect where you go right out into outer space and I can view the planet. And then suddenly they would direct me to another point on the planet and they'd shoot me right back to that point and they would drop me off in this new environment and I'm just kind of standing in this new environment and I realize it's not a place I recognize so that's where I realized that okay this is not only astral travel but this is uh, astral time travel I'm being placed in a different timeline of earth and the original things that they would show me was um, very traumatic, very horrific, almost like end of the world type scenarios. And they would drop me there to witness whatever I was witnessing. 
And once I got the feel of it and the experience, they would come pick me back up. I get shot back into outer space and then shot back down into my body and I'd wake up white as a coast basically because um, they were quite traumatic events for me. But do you have an understanding of why? Why you? Why you were chosen for this and these visions and messages? I think there's a couple reasons. One, I think I've done this in many past lives. It's something that I'm used to doing. It's something that I'm used to the feel of. Um, also, I think it's because I passed those tests with those shadows. You know, seeing how I would react to all these situations was actually leading up to this really traumatic thing because if I didn't have that lead up, um, I would probably go into a mental asylum very quickly because the things I saw, it's almost like a soldier going into a battle. Uh, you see things that no one should see. But for what purpose? They're trying to show you the future, trying to show you part of uh, mankind's destiny, or what was the, what is the purpose of all this? I think it's a warning. I think it's. I don't believe that that's our actual future. What I really do believe is that that is a, a path that we are we could walk. It's a very likely timeline, and I got the sense that in a parallel Earth, that has already happened. It has already occurred. Um, and we are on, actually on a different timeline that avoided those wars. So I was actually being shown things that have actually occurred already. Do you have a certain sense of the intervention of these various beings, these various aliens, in terms of how much they are intervening in human affairs and basically influencing our lives even if we don't realize it? They're absolutely intervening and um, in a positive way, but it's almost like we have to uh, we have to take responsibility with them. So it's almost like they can show someone like myself or awaken someone like myself. They can show us other worlds, other dimensions, uh, spiritual knowledge and techniques. But we have to take that responsibility and then use it ourselves. So when they would guide me and teach me, um, I listened 100% and I used whatever they taught me and it's bettered my life. And then I've you know, spoken publicly about the information that was given to me and that's helped other people. So it's almost like they're uh, giving a carrot to some people and seeing if they take a bite. And if they do, then you, know, you get this great knowledge that comes into the world. And I think that they choose specific people to do this because they know that their life path or the people that they're connected to, that message could reach a very large amount of people and help a lot of people. But you talk about being taken out of your body and use of portals. This is almost more in the magical realm, and yet we have, a lot of, we have a lot of sightings of UFO craft, physical craft, technology. Why does certain aliens need physical manifestation craft and others seem to use more natural magic portals, things like this? Well, I'll tell you that I have never physically seen an alien, ever. It's never happened to me. But I've seen physical craft. I've seen craft that I would consider living, alive, or dimensional, because I've seen them pop in and out of existence. Um, the most amazing thing that I find about my experiences is that I can sense and feel that something is in the room with me, but I can't see them with my physical eyes, but I have the ability to leave my body. So once I look out of my body, suddenly those beings are standing in this room, and I can see them clear as day. So from my understanding, those beings, like you know, I've seen uh, what people refer to as the greys or the reptilians or insectoids or 
a whole list of characters. I only saw them once I left my body. So for me, they were never a physical being. For me, they were a dimensional being. And of those beings you talk about, the reptoids and the mantids and the greys, did you find that they are nefarious, as many people claim? I've had both experiences. I've had experiences which are terrible, and I've had experiences which are very positive. Um, so I really have come to the conclusion that you have to treat every alien, or I wouldn't say alien, every being, um, the same as you would treat a human. Um, you have to treat them with respect and honor right off the bat. You don't show fear, you don't, you know, you just stay very calm because there's some that are very beneficial to you, which are great teachers, and there's some that, um, like you say, want to take your energy and use you and manipulate you, which happens a lot in the lower astral realms. And I feel um, right now in this industry, right now in this time, many people are being taken by these uh, manipulations. Mm. Speaking of manipulations, there's an interesting character we have to discuss, which is John Titor, part two, yeah. second. You co-wrote this book, Disclosed, about his story. And um, obviously the first John Titor, he's considered a, a fraud. He appeared in 2000, around 2000, 2001, on these online internet blogs. And it was an interesting, compelling story of a future time traveler who was sent to the past, and he's basically you know, trying to warn people about coming world wars and global conflicts and destruction. And then this John Titor II appears, and I think you now consider him a fraud. But what what made you at first believe him and then come to the realization that he wasn't what he said he was? Well, you know, just like most people um, that have a really amazing story, they're very uh, charismatic, they're very nice, they have quite a story. When I first uh, spoke to John uh, II, his story was um, it was very believable. You know, he started to relive war stories that were in the future and in the past, and it was things I've never heard before. Um, and it was completely different. It was a completely different story than the original John Titor. So I said, you know what, talk to my friend Bob Mitchell. He's a writer. Um, and they spoke, and they decided they were going to write the book. And my role was to, I'm a very good graphic designer, and I put all the pieces together. Um, so we all work together to put this work together. But within four months of the book being released, um, his true identity got leaked um, to a radio show. And then it went all over the internet, and he was basically blacklisted from all the shows. Um, he's still out there. He's still claiming he's John Titor II, but um, we have found evidence of his uh, true identity and um, a very lengthy criminal history uh, that goes completely counter um, to what he claims. So I would consider it um, what he wrote fraudulent, even though um, there's lots of truth in that book. We don't know what sources he took that from. Right. Right. And I'm actually currently working with um, Special Agent John D'Souza from the FBI. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. He's wrote, he's written a couple uh, compelling books in this uh, subject matter. And we're working together now with um, the FBI and FBI attorneys uh, to look into this character because um, there's a lot of stuff he's doing in the background that is not um, good for anybody. Mm -hmm. So, but what is this name, John Titor? Why would he take John Titor II? It, it's it, it, it would have been, didn't that tip you off in the sense that maybe there was something wrong if the first John Titor was a fake? 
Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's very interesting because the original John Titer always claimed that his name wasn't John Titer. He was just using that as an alias to protect himself. Mm -hmm. um, but John Titer II claims that John Titer is his real name. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a real tip-off right there. And, you know, before I came to see you, I'm, I'm thinking last night in the hotel, what is this name, John Titer, right? And then I remembered this character from the 60s. His name is George Van Tassel. And he has an amazing story, a contact story, where uh, a ship lands in his airfield in the middle of the night, and there's four beings, which are humanoids, and they're humans. They invite him on the ship, and he, they tell him that they're time travelers from the future. So he asks these time travelers, you know, how does time travel work? And he goes, well, it's quite easy. I'll give you the mathematical formula for a time machine. So I'm going to write this down for you because I just figured this out last night, so I might as well break it on your show, right? <laughs> okay, so his equation was time and then equals uh, frequency, which most people refer to as rate, um, equals 1 over time. Okay, so this is the equation that the time travelers gave George mm -hmm. in the 60s. Okay. So I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, what if I take this, um, these words, and I'm just going to write it out, okay? So, you know, if you take these letters, one over, over time. Okay, isn't that an anagram for tighter? The formula for time travel. What I'm thinking now is the original John Titer, or the, the original person that wrote the John Titer, yeah. knew about this story, knew about the formula for time travel that was given to George, and he took that and hid it in the name Titer. I don't know if I'm right. It's interesting though. But hey, you know, putting some pieces together possibly. So when you hear claims about other time travelers, yeah. I'm thinking of like Andy, Andy Visaggio, it's a very famous one. We interviewed interviewed him for Conspiracy Theory with Jesse Ventura. And this is a physical time travel experience. You talk about multidimensional experiences, but this is a physical time travel experience. Are you skeptical when you hear stories like this? I am. I really am skeptical about time travelers, but in, in a sense, I do believe that it's real, right? Um, the thing with whistleblowers is that um, if you're a true whistleblower coming out, um, you're probably gonna be hunted down and killed. You know, bottom line, that's kind of what happens to you if you know some really crazy stuff. Um, so when, I'll just say, I kind of raise my eyebrow at uh, whistleblowers that want to take pictures with you and sell hats and t-shirts. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I have to ask just because your co-writer on this book, well, actually on both books, Bob Mitchell, um, he passed away recently. Are you at all suspicious about his passing? I am. Um, and he was into more things than he led on to. Um, because he was a very trusted person in the, in the media, a lot of people gave him classified things. A lot of people thought that they could share things with him. And he went on um, CBS News in June for the Alien Cosmic Expo. And he went on there, and this is a very big national news um, network, and basically uh, told them the truth from what his understanding of the truth was, that the U.S. military was 
uh, under the control of uh, some type of alien influence and they control the subject around the world and we don't have a government and there's no real democracy, etc., etc. And he said this across Canada and there was no one there to uh, rebuttal his statements. You know, in, in the media you need balanced reporting, right? Um, a couple months after he said that, he was dead. And uh, the type of cancer that he had was uh, pancreatic, which is very aggressive. But um, he found out, he was just saying he had pain in his side. And, uh, they thought he just had diabetes. Uh, but when they checked, they said, you have pancreatic cancer. And then a week later, he went to another doctor, and the doctor said, well, you also have liver cancer. And then a week later, they said, well, you also have stomach as well. So it's almost like this thing overtook his body in a couple of weeks. Um, and I've heard the same thing happen to other people that got too close. Right. So, I mean, here we have, again, the nefarious influence of the ET agenda, the idea that it has to be suppressed, that it has to be kept quiet. From your perspective, what is it that the ETs, or the extra-dimensional beings, let's say they're beings, um, want with Earth that they have to be so discreet and secret that they're present? I think that they need a portal into the physical world. And a human being is basically a portal. So they can overtake people's minds, their bodies, or even place their puppets in places of power. And they can start almost um, having many people be these puppets. So they have net their input into this earth. Uh, the thing that we don't understand about the human experience is that we are so powerful that we can change realities. They can't. So using our intentions, our hearts, our minds, we can envision and dream our future. We can create any world we want with our intentions. And if they could influence and manipulate our minds, our bodies, our world, they could implant whatever version of the future they want. And if we start to believe that, then they win. That's a pretty nefarious agenda. What, are the, what is the countervailing force to that? What is the counterbalancing faction to this? this dark agenda that basically wants to manipulate you is to teach us that we are those powerful beings see right now we're kind of in a fog like we don't know who we are we don't know our true power and we're just kind of wandering around this planet not knowing what we're going to do day to day um, and that's part of the agenda is to keep us like that you know give us a nine to five job all the bills family and pay the, the government so we don't have time to think about anything accept that mm -hmm. but the real truth is we're so powerful that you know what if you knew that you know the dream world was the first step into the spirit world and you can use that to travel to other worlds dimensions through all these portals and spider webs through time and space and you're basically free if you knew you're free you're eternal and you can manifest your own reality how can you be controlled in your experience and travels do you believe that the U.S., or let's say beyond the U.S., maybe the elite have some kind of secret space program taking place and that we're already basically building ships and working to we'll travel through the solar system? From the research that I've done personally, and this has to do with Nikola Tesla, um, we had all the answers uh, from the 1900s to the 1920s. Like we had anti-gravity, time travel, free energy. Uh, we had... Uh, technology to feed the world, to end all wars back then. All right, so if that technology 
was taken into uh, the military hands. Um, it's not used to free us, it's used to keep us in that current condition. So do they have a secret space program? I'm pretty sure all the technological programs that they have are secret, including space uh, travel, because this technology is definitely available to them, it's just not available to us. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about advanced technology, because oftentimes people will point us into the past to actually say, look, look to things like crystals. Why are crystals, which are basically, as I understand it, natural computers, they can hold all this information within them, um, why are they so important? Well, you know, if you go back to Atlantis, there's all these um, theories or past life, life regressions where they talk about that Atlantis was powered by crystals. And they would use the crystals, like different rubies and sapphires and gems, to uh, somehow uh, take the solar energy from the sun and transfer it into a huge amount of power. Um, but today in our world, we're using crystals for everything as well. All our technology is based on silicon dioxide. That's why we have uh, Silicon Valley. I think that there was a time in our past where we were so advanced that there, there had to be a decision made. Continue this technological path and destroy the planet and ourselves or go back to nature. And I was speaking to a very credible shaman who lives up in the woods in Canada who you know, just kind of keeps to himself. And he was telling me a story that his ancestors were so advanced that they had spaceships they had technology beyond anything we have today and it was decided that it was too destructive and there was two factions of people they chose to take the technology off world so they actually left the planet and then the rest went back to nature and lived with nature a spiritual life and he, he, he said that periodically through time these ancestors of the human race would come back in their spaceships and give their ancestors uh, a choice. Would you like to come with, with them or would you like to go back to nature and come go back to the source? And he said that uh, there's many cities on the planet that are just deserted. You know, in our past, there's all these populations that just disappear. And he, what he was telling me is that these ancestors came and those cities decided to go with those ancestors. But we are advancing technologically on this planet. And what does that mean then? Are we hitting this critical juncture where we decide if we're going to go back to a more natural orientation or if we're going to continue to advance technologically? But isn't there a balance between the two forces where we don't basically end up building Death Stars and you know war machines with our technology? We can actually use technology like crystals and other things to be in actually more harmony with nature. I believe that. And you know I use crystals all the time. And um, when you hold a crystal or use a crystal, what you're doing is you're tapping into this natural vibration of the universe, universal time vibration. And it hooks you into this um, source field energy. So you can have access to all these things. It awakens different DNA. It amplifies your um, electromagnetic fields. So right now, I'm trying to use crystals to know find myself and to be better with myself but um, what was his name Marcel Vogel he once quoted saying if people found the secret of crystals or if people knew the power of a crystal it would either end the world overnight or save the world so I think we're coming to this critical junction where um, 
technology is not going to support our environment. We need to understand that we have to support our environment naturally to support ourselves. We can use technology to help support nature, but right now we're using technology in the opposite way, which is to destroy nature, which will, you know, if we don't change, it's going to destroy us. And I've seen some of those futures, and I'm telling you, you don't want to go down that route. But it doesn't, I mean, how, how do you foresee us actually learning the lesson, in a sense? I mean, it doesn't seem that we're on a path of awakening at this point, although many people expected we would be after 2012. The truth is, I don't know. The truth is, you know, everybody's an individual, and they're going to see the reality the way they see it. Um, you know, we can only live by example and try to get information out. I think there will be a time coming very soon where um, it might be too late to turn back. And then we're going to have to use technology in the other sense to save us. So how can we use technology now, or how do we release the, the hidden technology that's been kept from us to help um, save this planet? In terms of your experiences with the, with the extra-dimensional beings, do you not see them at any point making their presence more felt or known? basically help wake up many people who are still sleeping or just is the idea that people are not awake enough to recognize their presence so they know they're not going to interfere what the extra dimensional beings want people to understand is that they're incarnating as human beings so they're coming here and they're being born very enlightened children and those enlightened children they're the ones that are going to try to make this shift and change because they are the extra-dimensional beings. That's pretty accurate, I think. <laughs> what is your plan as far, as far as the work that you're doing is in spreading the message? Um, you know, I think the reason all this stuff happened to me um, was so that I can share it from a very balanced perspective. Because I, you know, I didn't really grow up in any religion. I didn't really know anything about politics or, or conspiracies. I didn't know about any of this stuff until I started to see it firsthand. So I think just by sharing and being open about my personal experiences helps many others come forward because I've been told that there's actually a million plus people just like me that are going through the exact same process that I've been through. And I get emails all the time from people saying, what happened to you is identical to what's happened to me. So I know these multidimensional beings have been incarnating here since the 70s at least, and they are positively changing the course of our timelines. Well, it's good to have you as a spokesman that many people can look can relate with, and uh, I wish you luck in the journey. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jason. And there you have it, folks. Some fascinating insights from Jason Quitt. You may not agree with or believe everything he said here, but I urge you to check out his book, Forbidden Knowledge, Revelations of a Multidimensional Time Traveler. Remember, the road to truth is a perilous path along the buzzsaw's edge. It requires constant reassessment. I'm your host, Sean Stone. You are the revolution.
the Buzzsaw, where we cut through the mainstream narrative to explore the hidden truths. I'm your host, Sean Stone, and with me today is a familiar guest, Billy Carson. He's the founder of ForbiddenKnowledge.com and UniteThe99.com. Billy has combined forces with the top anomaly hunters in the world to form the United Family of Anomaly Hunters. Their mission is to provide enough evidence of past and present life on Earth and other celestial bodies inside our own solar system. Today, he joins me to reveal his research on genetic manipulation and much more. So let's start with this. You know, recently, the Kazakhstani scientists have come forth with this paper talking about uh, the number 37 that appears, they say, about nine separate times in the human genetic coding. Yeah. And so they're saying, look, the coincidence like that, this would occur about one in 10 trillion times, mm -hmm. right? So their, their whole thing is just based on this number 37 popping up so many times, yeah. they think it's a sign of intentional design. Mm -hmm. Does this look like vindication for the Anunnaki theory? Basically, there has been <laughs> tampering and an alien manipulation of the human yeah. genome. Well, it definitely is evidence of tampering of the human genome because to get that, like they said, it's one in a trillion. I mean, you, you'd have a better chance of winning the lottery every single day before this can actually happen just by happenstance in, in normal evolution. So what I think has really happened is not only is it vindication that the Anunnaki came here and genetically modified the existing hominids on this planet, but I think even prior to the Anunnaki, there may have been other species visiting this planet and, and basically genetically encoding us as well. So even the existing hominid might have already been modified before the Anunnaki got here, and they may have just put the finishing touches on that modification, because I really do believe that Earth is like a gigantic uh, laboratory. Mm -hmm. um, well, in fact, that's, that's the argument made, is that um, on one hand, there are those who say the Anunnaki sky gods mm -hmm. are the ones that created mankind, mm -hmm. basically from some kind of, you know, uh, sapien, mm -hmm. right, merging the sapien, right. you know, some kind of monkey creature with, uh, mm -hmm. with, the, with the alien to create a human. But then there's the other argument that says, wait a minute, the Anunnaki just were sort of the last ones to come to then manipulate the human genome or maybe to limit it and to basically create the modern human and then proclaim themselves our gods. Right. What's your take on that? There's a couple of takes because one is Neanderthal, who has thought, was thought now currently to be um, a lower IQ than a human, some scientists are now coming forward saying, wait a minute, the, uh, the actual Neanderthal may have actually been smarter than the modern-day human uh, with more cranial space and so forth and just some of the research. And smarter not meaning uh, do they know quantum physics, and but they were more in tune with the planet, with the Earth. Uh, they were more in tune with nature. They may have, have had better access to their higher sensory perception. Uh, you know, like how animals can tell there's an earthquake coming and they get out of Dodge long before it comes or the animals in the Philippines before the tsunami hit, the wild animals all left. Mm -hmm. You know, so those type of uh, intuitions and things, they may have been better tuned than the modern day human. Um, but it really is showing that there's po it's possible that even like the Ubaid culture who was here prior to the Anunnaki, and those Ubaid statuettes have been discovered in Iraq where they actually look like reptilian people. Mm -hmm. they're, they're prior to the Anunnaki's arrival, or prior to the Sumerian civilization, I should say, uh, and they actually show, depict humanoid reptilians, even breastfeeding. Uh, and these are some amazing artifacts that are real, that are actually in museums, and I actually have a replica of two of them at my house. One is a male, and one is a female that's actually breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. Now, when the Anunnaki get here, they really want to um, uh, take us to another level, but to make us subservient at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's very possible that the main objective that they had were, was to uh, 